Triathlon Show 247. up everybody and welcome back to another episode of that triathlon show the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com i'm your host michael and on today's episode i interview mark pierce mark is a triathlon coach in the uk with a strong background in physiology and sports science including having worked as the physiologist of the british triathlon olympic team from 2002 until 2010 he has been to two olympics during that time athens 2004 and beijing 2008 and he also went to the 2012 olympics as a coach of one of the athletes so he brings a wealth of experience from high performance sports that he now applies to both professional and age group triathletes in his coaching practice but before we get into the interview with Mark, big thanks to our sponsors. First, we have Precision Hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Precision Hydration make electrolyte products that you can match to your individual uh, sweat sodium concentration. And they make it easy for you. You can just take their free sweat test, click free hydration plan in the menu bar on the website. And it takes a few minutes to answer 10 questions and you'll get an estimate for what your sweat sodium content is. But beyond that, Precision Hydration are also really great at educating uh, everybody about hydration, nutrition, and all sorts of things related to endurance sports. So be sure to check out their blog and their newsletter. There's a lot of great content there. Uh, they also have some YouTube videos, interviews with coaches and athletes. I was on there uh, a month or two ago, and uh, it's uh, just Lots of great content there to discover for you. High quality stuff. Uh, a lot of the posts are really long and detailed and uh, ref reference a lot of good science when it comes to things like hydration and nutrition. You can get 15% off your order with the promo code DEATTRAFFLONSHOW15. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Roka are the world-leading manufacturers of wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, and high-performance eyewear. But also in the last couple of years, they have really, really uh, pushed the envelope when it comes to developing eyewear, uh, glasses, prescription glasses and sunglasses for both uh, performance for sports, but also for day to day. And uh, the same attitude and innovative spirit that uh, started back in a garage in Texas when uh, Roka set out to develop the world's fastest wetsuit uh, carries through to their eyewear line today. So go and check out all of the prescription glasses and sunglasses they are really super high quality i use the rory prescription glasses and love them you can get 20 percent off your order on roca.com forward slash tts without any further ado let's get into the interview with coach mark pierce welcome to that triathlon show mark how are you doing i'm fine thank you and you Good, thanks. Why don't you start by introducing yourself to the audience and uh, tell us a bit more about your background in, in the sport and what you're currently doing. I'm uh, Mark Pierce. I'm a physiologist by background. Uh, I graduated in, in 2000s with a master's and I started work uh, immediately in sailing, uh, So, which is sort of not the most obvious uh, route for, for a physiologist. Uh, but at the time, there was very few physiologists being employed by by sports, uh, certainly applied uh, physiologists. And I had the opportunity to, to work there. So I started there for a couple of years, and then and that's when I moved to triathlon. Uh, so the endurance sport is my background and uh, in, in sport. 
and uh, the opportunity to work at an Olympic triathlon was too much to to refuse. So I moved to Loughborough and was physiologist, sports scientist, performance scientist. We went through a variety of different um, titles at the time. Uh, and then sort of that kept me entertained for a few years. So I went through Athens Olympics, Beijing Olympics as physiologist. Uh, and then after that, I'd sort of moved moved my way up into management. So I didn't really like management. I like doing things, uh, not telling people to do things. Uh, so I ended up, um, to cut a long story short, as the head coach for the High Performance Centre in Loughborough. So the UK has two high performance centres, one in Loughborough, one in Leeds. And uh, so I was coaching athletes like Adam Bowden, Mark Buckingham. Uh, I coached Lucy Hall for London 2012 Olympics. Um, Matt Sharp, who won under 23 Worlds in 2013, I think. I um, can't remember now. Uh, and then, uh, so post uh, 2012, we had, a ma- we had a management shift and... Um, I decided that uh, it wasn't the right place for me anymore and I wanted to go long. I had a young family. And so I moved into doing what I do now, which is running intelligent triathlon training, uh, coaching pro and age group, middle distance, long distance athletes normally. Um, although I do coach a couple of athletes who, who do do the sort of ITU sprint and standard distance events. Yeah, great. And uh, did you have uh, any, did, were you racing triathlon yourself or? I, <laughs> I I've done two triathlons, um, both of which were six or seven years before I even got into the world of triathlon. Um, so I'm a cyclist by background. Um, I raced internationally as a junior and first couple of years as a senior before they were under 23 categories. Um, and then I decided I wasn't quite good enough to, to, to meet the uh, demands of what I wanted. So I needed to, to get a life. Uh, I needed to get a job. So I went back and redid my education and became a sports scientist. All right, great. Uh, so let's start with a, a very, very difficult question. Perhaps the most difficult one I'll, I'll ask you, but uh, I think it's uh, one that I'm very keen to hear your take on, especially since you have this strong background in physiology, but uh, but in applied physiology and, and in coaching, obviously. And that is, uh, can you give an overview of your main coaching slash training principles? That's a, that's a tricky question. I think uh, you know. It's, it's, I know it's a it's a great question, but it's a tricky one because for me, I, I don't I don't have one sort of overriding, uh, I guess, principle um, that sort of you know a, a one liner that you can you can dish out that sort of encompasses everything. For me, uh, I'm a problem solver, um, and I, as a scientist and, and as a coach, it's all for me. I see coaching is a series of problems that you're trying to solve. An athlete comes to you, they want to get better. Um, and so you look at the the whole problem. Of where are they now? How do they get to where they want to be? Um, and then it's unpicking what needs to be done. So I guess if I, I guess if I had to sort of put, uh, put a label on it, one of the things we have on our, on the website is focus informed and objective triathlon coaching uh, in partnership with an athlete. So, because for me, again, the athlete needs to be a part of part of that journey. Uh, you know, some coaches are very dictatorial and, and some athletes like that. But for me, I need uh, athletes to be engaged in the process and I need to be engaged in their process as well um, to be, to be able to deliver the best coaching. I worked with um, Joel Filial, uh, obviously very well known, uh, probably one of the highest profile coaches in the sport at the moment. So I worked with him back in 2010 to 2014 when he was head coach for British triathlon. And what some of the sort of topics we were talking about then, and I think it's one of the the, the 
the uh, phrases he uses at the moment is something along the lines of uh, the minimum amount of training for the maximum amount of training adaptation. Um, and I, I mean, that's something we've discussed and I, I agree with as well. Triathlons, especially in the, the longer distances, tends to be about how much volume or how much training can you do. Whereas actually I try and, especially when you work with age group athletes, trying to work out what's the best response you can get for the minimum amount of training. Uh, and, you know, that's certainly something we, we work with a lot of athletes on. Yeah. And uh, that uh, brings me to one of my follow-up questions on that, which <laughs> would be, what are the main areas where you see athletes often go wrong when it comes to training? And I imagine that uh, just doing too much volume might be one of your answers. Do you have any any other yeah. points that you want to uh, to point out? Um, I think social media, to be honest. Um, you know, one of my one of the biggest uh, problems I see with a lot of people, and I, you know, I've had this with a number of athletes that, that come in, and they see things on social media, and it's you know Jan Frodeno or a major player hitting some big session or explaining you know their training days, and and they see these things, and people just want to jump straight in and do it, um, and oh, I should be doing that, or I need that piece of equipment, or. And a lot of the times it's it just, it's scattergun approach. It's not a, a systematic, um, considered, planned, periodized program or plan. Um, and they're just jumping on the next bandwagon. You know, nutrition is another great example. There's so much stuff out there on nutrition and diets and this and that. Um, and for some people, these things will be appropriate. And for some people, they'll be appropriate in the future or potentially in the past. But um it, a lot of the time it's it's jumping from one thing to the next without really having that that plan yeah that makes sense and one thing that we talked about before we started recording actually that uh, we might want to touch on is uh, you mentioned over racing as well as something that uh, this year during the pandemic you've seen that a lot of athletes have learned to see how much progress they can make with with no races on the calendar so maybe you want to talk a little bit about that as well yeah, I mean, that's, that's been an interesting one. I mean, I, I'm sure you, you've had the same as well. With um, um, Athletes love racing, so uh, of course they want they want to go and race. Uh, and if you're if you're an age grouper and, and that's the, the, the goal of your program is to race and enjoy and have a social fun, that's great. But if you're trying to qualify for things or you want to, to maximise your performance, you can't race every week or every other week throughout the season and expect to continue improving. Um, it, you just can't do all the training and the recovery and the performances in races that require that, that are required to to move forward. So this period where we've had obviously no races um, and the progress that we've been able to build upon from the from the winter and continue. Obviously, we've changed training because of the anticipation of racing, um, and we've put in some practice sort of race like events, but. Um, we've seen pretty much everybody across the board more improvement than we would normally see in a season because we've been able to focus upon upon the process of training and improving performance. Now, next year when races return, hopefully, then uh, we're obviously not going to have quite the same, uh, same way we can do that. But the lessons can be taken from this and applied next year uh, and in future years much more effectively, I think. Yeah, and, and on that note, in, in a normal year where you would have races, how what are your thoughts around training periodization how do you go about that uh a lot depends upon the athlete um a lot depends upon obviously the, the length of the events they're looking at so an ironman somebody focusing on ironman is going to have different periodization plans somebody who's focusing on sprint distance or standard distance races um and so and again i i've 
I don't have a model. I mean, many coaches have a model that they, they apply and a, 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 a very, very strict principle of like, we do this um, and they base their careers or their, their coaching businesses around that model. For me, the, I don't have a model. I, I, I take each individual as, a, as an individual uh, and try to understand that if a new athlete's coming in, where they are at the moment, what's their, what are their characteristics? And then where do they want to get to and where have they been? Uh, because an, an athlete who's been training for a year, uh, even if their performance level is the same as an athlete who's been training for 10 years, then what they can do and what they potentially need to do is completely different uh, because of their, their training history um, their, and their, their strengths and weaknesses within that. So, so we tend to, tend to build each program uh, and each periodization program is based around what the athlete, uh, where they actually are, what they need to do, and the time that they've got available. Pros, it's a lot more, uh, a lot easier to be able to build a program because you've got pretty much all the hours in the day to play with. But an age grouper who's working a lot of hours in London or somewhere, uh, compared to an age grouper who's working at home with a lot more disposable time, the periodization plan is different. Uh, it just has to be. What if we give an example? Let's take an age mm-hmm. grouper who has been in the sport for a few years, four to five years, and they're focusing on mm-hmm. half and full distance racing. And uh, let's say they have a normal day job, and uh, usually they do go to an office, but but it's not it's it's a normal job, n- nothing uh, extreme, mm-hmm. one side or the other. What might that look like? In, and let's also say that they're fairly well rounded across the three disciplines. I mean, periodization is, it's just a plan, isn't it? So uh, you hear about things like reverse periodization. To me, reverse reverse periodization is is just periodization done differently. So same as all of it is. If you're looking at sort of a middle distance athlete with a normal job, then, and they've got a relatively rounded profile, the sort of default starting point to to work with beginning is, is that reverse periodization. So I tend to start with actually the, the higher intensity, assuming they've, done a little bit of training you don't sort of give them a month off at the end of the season and then jump straight back in with this but um it's to to build the fitness quickly um so that you're lifting the ceiling lifting the capacity so we might start work with um to start with some gentle but then getting more vigorous vo2 max type sessions so polarizing training a little bit more so there is higher intensity work in there uh, conditioning work to in order to to support that um and low intensity volume uh after a period of time, and that period of time varies depending upon, again, the athlete, the, the time available, et cetera. But sort of eight weeks is generally a sort of a minimum because only less than eight weeks and you're not really going to get much of a response, training response to it. Uh, then we start to look at developing a little bit more, a short period of fatigue resistance, and then we come back to a bit more polarization, uh, back to a bit more fatigue resistance or threshold development work. Um, and then so as you build in towards a race then, for a lot of, especially longer distance athletes, race intensity is is not actually that high. Uh, you know, if you look at an Ironman, typical Ironman intensity bike, for instance, would be around eighty percent FTP uh, for a, for a pretty well conditioned athlete, 82 percent. So, actual race intensity is is relatively low. So we tend to do um, sort of somewhere between six weeks and three weeks out from a major event, some fairly, fairly significant training blocks around race intensity. So really dialing in what powers can they hold? What speeds can they hold for running? Uh, and getting them to really learn to feel that, develop all the specific muscle, muscular adaptations around that, the neurological side of things, um, and the psychology of it as well, getting used to what race, race intensity feels like for race durations. 
Yeah, that makes makes perfect sense. So basically, you're focusing quite a large period of the season there, building up to the race on on building the engine in mm-hmm. what you deem would be the uh, the optimal way, and then a specificity comes uh, close to the race yeah. in a fairly short and concentrated yeah. period. Yeah, I mean, one of the thing, topics we were going to talk about is periodization, but it, and for me, that's the the plan is 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 everything really uh, and i'm um, having having a decent plan for an athlete and having a plan that they can engage in and understand um is fundamental to them being able to buy into the to the program or to the plan that you as the coach are, are trying to deliver uh it's some of the tools you think with the technology we have now so it would be a lot easier but i i tend to find a lot of the tools that we have now make it harder uh to actually get a decent plan put together and uh uh, outlined so that athletes can understand it and um, and sort of engage in it. Can you give an example? Uh, wh- why do you think that is? Well, I mean, most coaches would use training peaks. I think mm. for for planning training because it's. I mean, it, it is the the standard, I suppose, in the industry. I'm sure people are going to say uh, there's other platforms like Today's Plan and and various other places. But most coaches will use training peaks in one form or another to set play. But their periodization and their planning and their ability to communicate with athletes is pretty poor. Um, there's their ATP is horrific uh, in my opinion uh, and uh, and there's very little ways of communicating that so you need to go outside that so I'm sure every other co- every coach listening has probably got a spreadsheet somewhere or an Excel document or a uh, Word document or a shared folder or something like that with all sorts of comments and observations and feedback and things like that what I, I I've been sort of working on for the last couple of years in my in my own practice is is trying to develop a better system for that um, so creating a, a database to enable us to do an awful lot more. So we talk about things. Obviously, you've got the basic training types and, and sessions and things, but there's a lot more goes on as well. It's, it's sort of things like if you're adding a strength and conditioning or plyometrics or if you're trying to do a heat adaptation phase or you've got an athlete who is, um, is uh, doing a nutrition strategy or something like that. All those things you can't very easily fit into a, into training peaks or anything like that because there's nowhere to put them, uh, nowhere to really effectively communicate them very well. Yeah, yeah, that, and all that, those things I think are really, really important. Yeah, that makes sense. So I, I, to my mind, I I start visualizing some sort of timeline with uh, where you can make annotations and tagging exactly. and that sort of thing. But yeah, yeah, you're right. That's not really yeah. easy to do to do in there it's, and and exactly if you're stuck with the atp in training peaks i mean i don't uh, i never look I, at it it's, it's just no, it's, 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 it's useless yeah, so yeah, yeah. um all right and one thing that i want to get back to that you mentioned there was the the eight weeks or minimum for the vo2 max block can you elaborate mm-hmm. on that does that apply to other types of training as well that generally you want to do you want to focus on one or a couple of types of training and do that for a pretty extended amount of time to, to really see the benefits or yeah how do you uh, view that yes and no i mean some, some types of training so uh, if you're looking at things like threshold development uh, then yeah you're looking sort of six to eight weeks really minimum if you do a couple of weeks of threshold sessions you might notice some some very acute changes so uh, typically you see it in a training block week one somebody finds a, a threshold session fairly hard next week they find it a little bit easier that's basically neuromuscular and psychological i think uh, people are starting to adapt very very acutely to that to that type of training session if you want to see meaningful uh, chronic adaptations you need a prolonged period of time working uh, on a or developing a, a, a physiological system now you can't isolate each individual system and go right we're going to specifically develop threshold or vo2 max because the training will have impact on on all areas 
but you if you want to be able to develop a certain type of training you need to be able to do it for a, for a sustained period of time having said that some things like um, sort of sweet spot training or tempo work then uh, we would sometimes use a, a four or five or even a six week block but that's pretty much the limit on proper sweet spot um, type training uh, uh, that I would I would consider I think once you start to go beyond that for a lot of athletes then the the training load becomes very very high because sweet spot sessions those hard endurance sessions have huge training loads and um, you know any longer than that then and you're starting to to push people over the edge and the quality starts to go and the fatigue you're just making them tired you're not making them fitter yeah that that, that makes makes a lot of sense to me and in in a specific block like that how do you view the reversibility of uh, the the gains you've made in previous blocks? Like, for example, would you do your inner threshold block, but before that you did a VO2 max block, would you keep some VO2 max training in there still to maintain those gains? Or how do you view that? Yeah, yes, you would you would keep a little bit in there. I think naturally that happens anyway. But um, the, the high end, I mean, VO2 max, it's a, it's a funny sort of subject because a lot of people go, oh, VO2 max is relevant. And yeah, I wouldn't say it's irrelevant. It's not the it's not a great predictor of performance, but it doesn't mean to say it's irrelevant uh, because the ceiling. If you want to run a, let's say for argument's sake, forty minute ten k, you can't run a forty minute ten k if your VO2 max is forty five mils per kilo. Similarly, if you've got a VO2 max of seventy mils per kilo and you're only running forty minutes, then you're doing there's something else somewhere. So it's it's one of those factors that understanding where it is helps to um, helps to understand your potential limitations. Yeah. Obviously, there's two types with, with VO2 max. You can you can get improved VO2 max through through high volume training or low intensity, and you can improve it through intervals. But the responses that you get are slightly different depending upon the type of training. I tend to find the higher intensity work on, on a VO2 max work will lead to to quicker response, but a shorter term uh, it'll be more acute. So the the reversibility will be faster. If you're able to do a if you've got the time to do a high volume program or low intensity, and you do enough of it those adaptations are much more chronic and and will stick around for, for a lot a lot longer. Uh, so hence the reason why polarization kind of hits both marks. So you're either training very hard and working on VO2 max or you're training very easy and uh, and getting a high volume. However, most age groupers can't do the kind of volume in a polarized program that you'd need to get those big big adaptations from from the volume side of it because they haven't got 25 hours a week to train. Uh so you tend to get so we tend to try and consolidate when you've done a higher intensity block to develop like you say something like the O2 Max, you're trying to consolidate that and and retain the benefits and the gains from it without actually uh sort of reducing them or or very small um, reverses in in performance or or capacity um whilst allowing the athlete to recover and developing something else so yeah you would keep even in a sweet spot block for instance there would still be an element of, of some high intensity in there just a lot less yeah yeah and let's get into that topic of polarized <coughs> training uh, you mentioned 25 hours uh do you think that well, just elaborate on your views on the volume required to really get the benefits from it and do you think that it's dependent on your history in the sport like for example for somebody who is in there an age grouper that that's in their second or third year of triathlon they don't have a big background in endurance sports the threshold for when it uh, is useful might be a lot less than for somebody who has been doing triathlon for 10 years and are already uh, very fit for an age grouper or how do you view view that those parts as well of, of what the minimum amount of volume required would be for it to be successful 
Yeah, I mean, again, it's a million-dollar question, isn't it? I mean, polarization is one of those sort of social media topics at the moment that's quite popular, and you know, a lot of people are, are polarizing training a lot. Um, for me, polarization is just uh, just part of the process. I wouldn't. I'm not a polarized coach. We use polarized training, but it has its place within a within an overall program. Um, I, I went to a, um, a talk at the University of Loughborough uh, probably probably a year or so ago now, and it was about this sort of topic, training loads and, and training um, periodization and things. Um, one of the presenters was presenting a lot of work on Kenyan runners and saying, you know, the, the 80% volume, 20% um, sort of intensity. Uh, it doesn't have to be VO2 max. Polarization is just over, thresh- over threshold, basically, over second threshold, FTP, LT2, whatever you want to call it. Um, so it doesn't have to be flat out, but it does it mean it's fairly high intensity. Uh, one of the things that struck me when they presented that, and one of the, one of my sort of, I guess, issues with polarization as a model uh, for training is they were th- these these athletes, these elite athletes, they were doing eighty percent volume, twenty percent high intensity, but the high intensity twenty percent of a lot of training is a lot of high intensity. If you're doing twenty hours a week and you're doing twenty percent of your uh, training over threshold you've got four five potentially some of these athletes up to six hours of over threshold training a week that's nearly as much training as some athlete some age groupers would do in a week period um so for me is the adaptation to polarization because of the amount of intensity that they do or is it because of the combination of the volume and the intensity if you've only got if you're an age grouper with 10 to 12 hours training to play with over the course of a week across swim, bike and run, um, it's going to be incredibly difficult to get enough volume in to to match that 80% volume, 20% intensity. Um, whereas your your training, your quality training sessions are going to be extremely small because you've only got sort of an hour, an hour and a half to play with to, to do your 20% if you like. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. And yeah. it, uh, it's, it's something that, yeah, a couple of other coaches that I talked to have said the same same thing i remember recently sebastian weber for example said something very similar there uh to what you did yeah so uh, i mean i i've seen you know social media posts and things facebook and instagram of of coaches jumping on this bang on they don't really understand the mechanisms of of what's working just because um some elite uh, ironman athlete is is using a polarized approach for some of the season that doesn't necessarily apply down and it's one of the one of the things I think as a as a physiologist who is a coach, I would I would classify myself much more as a coach than I would as a physiologist, certainly now. Um, I've been out of the physiology world for quite a long time. Uh, but one of the things that you learn is is the ability to be able to analyse and understand the process and apply it, not just regurgitate what's published in a study. Um, so you read the study and you're trying to understand the, the principles of what it's trying to say. Um, and then as a coach, I can then interpret that and use that as part of the program. And I think this is polarization and the periodization research is, is a good example of that because too many people just jump on what a research study said about elite athletes and we need to transfer that to age group athletes. And it's not necessarily valid. Yeah. So, so to put it another way, uh, we, we are saying essentially that, that maybe the, the percentage isn't the most important thing, but it's actually the absolute amount exactly. of intensity that is important, which means that exactly. age groupers that are training at a lower volume uh, can have very different percentages than elite athletes, especially when we're talking yeah. long distance triathletes that might be training. Up I to. wouldn't go as far as saying they need to be trying to get six hours of high quality training in like a, you know, an elite runner or an elite triathlete would be able to do. 
but the the percentage you doing eighty and twenty percent isn't necessarily going to work out because um, you know, irrespective of the back the original part of the question, irrespective of the background of the athlete or the experience of them, what the interesting part for me then is is the intensity needs to be low. So when you do the um, the easy part, because again with with polarization there are three zones. You have below first threshold, between first threshold and second threshold, and then above second threshold, um, and again that. That first zone, a lot of people misinterpret what that first zone represents as an intensity, because because it's called zone one, they will look to they they misinterpret mis, uh, it by looking at classical zone one, you know, like a six or seven zone model system, which is actually pretty easy. Well, zone one is below a, a roughly 75 percent FTP, um, which is actually still quite hard work. So if you were training at seventy percent FTP for your volume, you'd actually still be working pretty hard for most people. Yeah, yeah, definitely, and uh, and so it, it, for me, it's it's managing that that balance of being able to get people to train. Uh, if you've only got a few hours, you might need to train your volume closer to that seventy percent mark. If you've got, if you're a pro and you're doing twenty hours of volume bike or oh, biking and running a month or whatever a week, sorry, then you're going to have to do that at a lower intensity because if you tried to do ten, twelve, thirteen hours of biking at seventy percent FTP, you're going to be buried after a week or two yeah i read a paper the other day which was a retrospective four-year analysis of 21 world tour cyclists i think from team sunweb and mm-hmm. uh, their average uh, intensity factor so average percentage of ftp that they had in all the training sessions across those four years was uh 0.59 so 59 percent was, yeah. was the average yeah. but then we're yeah. talking about athletes that if they go and ride at 75%, which would still be yeah. right at sort of at that LT1, so in the zone one in the polarized right. model, they would be riding at 300, 300 watts probably or close to Yeah, it. I was going to say all their, all their training rides would be over 40k an hour. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, but but the, the training load would be huge then and, um, and unsustainable. Yeah. Yeah, so but so it, that, but if you if you if you're only doing four hours biking a week, or I say only. I'm sure some people are probably listening, thinking, "Oh, I wish I could do four hours a week." But if you're only doing four hours a week, if you do it at fifty nine percent, and you're uh, as you as you said, you've got four or five years training history, you're gonna there's no training overload. Uh, there's no training. You, you have to also think of the the principles of training. There has to be an overload. There has to be some kind of specificity to it. Um, and fifty nine, you know, forty nine, fifty percent. Uh, 50, sorry, up to sort of 60% for only a few hours a week is, is not going to be enough for an experienced triathlete to, to create an adaptation to. Yeah. You mentioned there uh, one aspect of your physiology back, physiology background that uh, that helps you in, in coaching. Are there any other things that uh, you draw upon regularly that, that helps you uh, having that dual background in physiology and, and coaching that you find particularly useful? Um, I mean, I think the most valuable thing of my my physiology background or my science background, if you like, is understanding the process rather than the sort of education that or the things that I learned. Uh, it's it's understanding how to uh, you know, coaching is a best guess, isn't it? So we we don't know the answers. We're educated, we have experience, and we see a, a situation or an athlete in front of us. You're then looking at the athlete, evaluating the performances they've done, evaluating the data that they can provide or the experiences that they can they can tell you about. Um, and then you're, as a coach, formulating a hypothesis about what's going to be the best best way forward for them. You plan that out, you execute it, 
And at some point, you should be retesting that. Now, that test might be a race or it might be a performance test or a physiology test or a lab test or something. But essentially, you're, you're going through that process of hypothesis, test, uh, evaluate, um, create a new hypothesis. And, <clears throat> excuse me, and that sort of philosophy, I guess, I, I said I didn't have much of a philosophy, but there you go. Um, that, that kind of philosophy, I think, is, is really important to, to being able to continue to develop an athlete. And that's the same when you look at, studies that come out and uh, papers and new research and things like that. It, it's being able to pick it all apart and understanding how these things come about uh, so that I can then use that information in, in a way with my, with the athletes that I coach. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in, in terms of new science coming out, one thing that I've been very interested in reading about recently is different types of intervals. And uh, mm -hmm. most recently on the podcast, I interviewed uh, Michael Rosenblatt. He did a meta-analysis on, uh, on different types of intervals. And he found that uh, across the literature, the published literature, it seems that longer high-intensity intervals, we're talking four minutes or so, four minutes or even longer, mm -hmm. might be more effective than shorter one, two-minute intervals and also more effective than sprint intervals, so 30-second intervals. Or so. Mm -hmm. I'm curious uh, to hear your thoughts around high-intensity intervals. Uh, is this something that do you have any particular thoughts in that area, or do you mix and match a little bit, or how do you do it? Uh, yeah, I, I would say we mix and match suitable for what the athletes trying to do at a particular time. I mean, I, I would agree that I, I think the, the slightly longer intervals are more powerful, but they're also higher higher impact. Um, so as i sort of started when we, we were talking about periodization then we might put out a vo2 max block at the beginning of the winter training that would tend to be the slightly for want of a better better term easier um way of, of being able to do it because you're trying to build the athlete in so the reps would be a bit shorter there might be a little bit less overall volume um and we increase that as we go along when you start to get to the more serious end if you like then the intervals become longer or the block. I mean, the classic VO2 max block is 40 seconds on, 20 seconds, 40 seconds at power at VO2 max, 20 seconds at, um, depending upon who you read, a little bit easier, sort of steady pace, if you like. Um, <clears throat> and you're trying to accumulate something like 20 minutes worth of, of that block across the course of, uh, across the course of your session. So it might be broken down into two 10 minutes like that or something. There you've got an example of a 40 second interval, but although it's a 40 second interval, it's not. It's really a 10 minute, 10 minute block where you're trying to elevate VO2 max or oxygen consumption, um, and make it last as long as you possibly can. Compare that with doing a, a sort of more classic four minute rep or five minute rep at VO2 max, then, um, you're gonna, it's gonna take a lot longer to accumulate the same amount of time at VO2 max, but the response is very different. Yeah, yeah. So, so you're saying yeah, that sprints are longer with but, the with the shorter with the shorter or the longer. So I think you can accumulate more when you're using the slightly shorter intervals. Okay. So when you if you're doing the 40 seconds on, 20 seconds off, then because that 20 seconds is like a micro rest, yep. it's not a full rest. It's not for very long. It just enables heart rate to just drop a couple of beats. Your oxygen consumption goes down ever so slightly. You're able to just about recover a little bit. Therefore, you can prolong the amount of work that you can do as a continuous block. I mean, to do a, to do a 10 minute block at VO2 max is, is theoretically impossible. Mm. Um, but what you're trying to do with those 40 seconds on the 20, you're trying to accumulate sort of up to about 10 or 12 minutes of, of doing that work. Um, and that basically prolongs in that one interval, 
then you're prolonging the amount of time that you're spending close or close to VO2 max. Yeah, yeah. As opposed to doing a, a four or a five minute effort where you're going to do four or five minutes now, the first 30, 40, 50, 60 seconds is going to be getting elevation of um, heart rate and uh, oxygen consumption. Then you're going to be hanging on for the next two or three minutes, depending upon how long your interval is. Then you need a fairly long recovery because of the fatigue and the uh, build up of hydrogen ions and things like that that's associated with it. So you need a long flush out period before you can repeat that again. You might still get 20 minutes worth of working, but you're doing it in shorter shorter blocks but at a more sustained uh, power output mm. and or running speed and when you're doing a vo2 max block keep uh, mm-hmm. keeping on that topic a little bit but how many mm-hmm. sessions might you uh, be doing then in a week and how, how would you spread it out across the disciplines i mean let's a triathlete uh, obviously you're focusing across generally those type, types of sessions are bike and run for me we do do vo2 max swim sessions as well but it doesn't work i don't think in quite the same way um, because a lot of the time swimming is more technically limited or um and there's a, there's a lot more factors at play there i think with swimming so if we're focusing on just the biking and the running side of things then it some in some cases it may have it may have across the two disciplines it may have five sessions in in a week um which is quite a lot uh for some athletes there might only be two or three uh, and that can change throughout again throughout the course of the season how many we do might also impact it might be affected by how big those sessions are so what the load of each particular session is so if for instance we're doing that early phase block in a polarized model we might do five vo2 max sessions in the course of the week but none of them will be pushing the boundaries of what the athlete can actually do if we want to get to that stage then we might be dropping that down to three or potentially four yep makes sense and uh What about uh, your thoughts on nutrition uh, in and out of training? And you mentioned sometimes uh, applying some specific strategies. Can you talk a little bit about mm-hmm. that? I, uh, nutrition is something uh, I've worked with nutritionists. So part, as part of the program, I've worked with nutritionists so since you know, 20 years now. And I think I've probably really appreciated, it, appreciated the work that they do a lot more in the last probably two or three years um, because – But a part of that is because the amount of information that's out there now, athletes get really confused, or they get, or they get very cl- get great great clarity about what they're going to do, and it's completely wrong uh, for them, and so they end up in a bit of a pickle. Um, so for me, nutrition has a, a really big part to play. Uh, it's just finding the right balance of how to use nutrition and and when to use the right thing. There's definitely nutritional strategies that can be employed. You've got sort of acute strategies for races. You've got chronic strategies for you know, longer-term training and, and life in general. Um, again, I don't have a, a single – I don't subscribe to a single nutritional strategy. I'm not high-fat, low-carb, or uh, high-carb, low-fat, or uh, um, paleo, or anything in particular, I think – You know, what I've seen, my experience is all of these things work for someone. Um, it's matching the right strategy at the right time um, with the right training to get the response that you want. From my, my personal experience, I'm, um, I gain weight relatively quickly if I eat a little bit too much or, um, or I don't do any training. And it just goes on very quickly and comes off very slowly. I found for my, myself, if I wasn't training very much, reducing the carbohydrate and Um, having a slightly higher fat content may basically dropped weight off. I was able to maintain my weight and or, or lose weight much, much quicker. However, as soon as I start training hard, if I don't have carbohydrates, I'm not a particularly great fat burner um, in, in training. I, my fat threshold is relatively low. 
if I start training and I start training relatively hard, if I don't increase the carbohydrate content, I blow up after about two weeks and, uh, you know, I can't do anything. I'm useless. Whereas, you know, I've seen other athletes that we've tested in the lab. They've got immense fat burning capacity, well over a gram per minute um, and nearly all the way through to second threshold. And, you know, it's, it's incredible. Those guys can operate on a completely different nutritional strategy to me um, and, and athletes in the same boat as me. So, for me, nutrition is it's like training. It's there are there are loads of different tools about to play with. You need to find the right tool or the right strategy for the right athlete at the right time. Yeah, and would you say that uh, generally you would want a lab test as the basis for for prescribing any particular strategy, or just having the discussion with an athlete you coach that this might or might not work for you, or are there any other ways than than an actual lab test to to assess that? I mean, you've got they've got lab tests. Um, you've got the inside testing that Sebastian Weber does um, that give you a, an estimation or uh, a measurement of um, fat burning capacity and um, uh, fat max. Uh, the other thing you, it's not ideal, but not every athlete has either the resources or the time or the opportunity to get to a decent lab. And and I do stress decent lab because there's a lot of people out there offering the you know fat testing or you know uh, meta- met- metabolic carts to for testing and things a lot of it is rubbish though so either the equipment's rubbish or the the, the person delivering its understanding of what they're doing is rubbish and you know rubbish in rubbish out um so uh, sometimes you haven't got the opportunity to be able to do that and you've got to take the experiences of the athlete and test them out a little bit you know it's usually quite easy to find out if somebody is a, a good or bad fat burner or a carb muncher um just by giving them a couple of training sessions either restricting or applying carbohydrates and see what happens um now you haven't obviously got any objective data to be able to use from that you can't you can't determine whether what the rates are or um or anything with any precision so your your benchmark for being able to test whether they've improved or not is pretty pretty blunt but um in some cases that's that's what you've got to play with as a coach so you you make the most of that But yes, ideally, we would see people through a lab and be able to to test and retest. Yeah. And would you implement a nutrition periodization? Let's say you have somebody who uh, you think does um, <coughs> need carbs generally in training, but would you have some periods in training where you uh, where you deliberately restrict uh, carbohydrates mm-hmm. still to maybe work on that? For the right athletes, yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, it's yeah, I had I had an athlete come to me last summer and. Um, He was his numbers. Training numbers were good. Thresholds were good. It, he was an <clears throat> excuse me. He was an Ironman athlete, and he kept saying, "Yeah, I'm, I'm only averaging 75% on the bike, 75% FTP on the bike." Excuse me a second. <clears throat> Sorry, he was only averaging 75% uh, FTP on the bike, which was well within his capacity. He said, "I'm getting off the bike. I feel great. I blow up every time after about like, five, six k on the marathon." Um, and we looked at it, and he was possibly the worst fat burner i've ever seen so even at 75 percent ftp he was still burning an sorry uh, it was still burning an enormous amount of carbohydrate um yet physiologically his its potential was there to go much much quicker he just literally couldn't consume enough carbohydrate to be able to fuel the intensity that he could ride and run at um so it didn't really matter what he did he couldn't finish the, the run at a decent pace because he was completely carb depleted So in his case, then yes, we had to pretty much take a, a very drastic um, intervention to be able to improve that fat burning ability, um, so that he's not turning over. He, he will always burn carbohydrates, um, 
but not what we were trying to do was reduce this reliance on carbohydrates and improve his ability to be able to burn fats as a fuel. Conversely, uh, some people only need a, a little nudge sometimes, or it's part of their taper process, or um, and, and there can be a variety of different reasons and why you would want to improve that uh, and periodize nutrition. You know, for an Ironman athlete, the ability to burn fats as a fuel is really useful. But you can, you've got to remember, you can still provide 70, 80, 90 grams of carbs every hour for a marathon, for an Ironman. It's, uh, you know, we have the availability to be able to do that. So you don't need to become um, this super duper fat burner um, and potentially compromise your training in order to do that. However, if you're like my first example, then you do need to do something about it. Mm, yeah, makes sense. If you're training, if you're training for a sprint, a standard, um, and you're potentially specialising in seventy point three, it's not so big an issue because as long as you go into an event uh, fully carb replete, you can provide enough carbohydrates for the for pretty much any intensity that you can you can maintain throughout that event. So as long as you've got a good nutrition strategy, then you can you can supply that. The other side to that discussion is also the training adaptation. So by restricting carbohydrates, you might not be trying to um, create an adaptation to, to improve fat mobilization. You might be trying to create other adaptations. And so, yes, definitely we use different strategies like that um, throughout the course of the year with athletes. Yeah. And uh, another thing I know that you've worked quite a lot with is heat adaptation. Uh, I think for the, uh, the Beijing Olympics, maybe the Athens Olympics mm -hmm. as well. So can you talk mm -hmm. a little bit about that? And uh, maybe even I, I assume that he has <coughs> developed uh, since then. Uh, it's 12 years ago now. So uh, what, what are your thoughts these <laughs> yeah. days around heat adaptation? Um, I mean, I think it's important, particularly, I mean, a lot of the athletes I coach are UK-based. Um, and as you know, we don't have the, the warmest climate here, especially during the summer. And, um, you know, a lot of them tend to race foreign races. So they'll be in Spain or Europe or across the States where the weather is quite often considerably warmer. Uh, so we do have to go along the lines of some sort, some form of heat adaptation. You know, we can see 10, sometimes 15% performance decrement uh, by, by not being heat adapted. And what's changed over the last few years for me is, is the ways in which we can do that. Uh, I've always been a subscriber to training relatively hard in the heat chamber. So once you've got a, a, an initial um, familiarization with it, then being able to do high quality sessions, you're trying to raise core temperature, you're improving sweat rates to try and help with your cooling capacity when you, when you get outside. Um, so I've always been a, a fan of being able to do quite hard training sessions in there. Uh, and funnily enough, one of the things that well, probably one of the things that sticks the most in my mind was training with Holly Avil, um, who was one of the women who went to Beijing Olympics. Um, in that we did a lot of heat adaptation work with her because she was not particularly good at it. And after about, I can't remember exactly the numbers now, but after a few weeks, we were seeing huge improvements in performance outside in cool climates. Um, and the, what we were what we were seeing was basically a, a sort of like a, an altitude uh, exposure. We're seeing plasma volume expansion. We're seeing improved buffering capacities. Uh, just physiologically, she was getting with the sessions she was doing. She was fine getting a much better training response than she would do if you were doing it outside. Also, uh, the coach she had at the time, uh, we with the coach that she had at the time, we were able to do much more specific training because you have to be fairly specific when you're in that that sort of environment. And I think that also had a big impact on on her fitness. Um, so even after Beijing Olympics had, had uh, gone, we continued to do heat chamber sessions with her. And I've, you know, I still, 
uh, find that valuable with with many athletes um, to actually make sure that some of their indoor sessions now not everybody's got a heat chamber um, in their backyard um, so you've got to kind of make do what you've got at home but training inside with the fan off for a period of time or um, with the, when the room is warm you can get you obviously create a heat adaptation a heat stress there um, and that does add to your to training effect so that's one of the sort of big things I, I think I learned and I've taken forward from that more recently, we've started to do a lot of passive heat training, uh, so using things like hot tubs and saunas uh, to to exacerbate that that heat adaptation effect and and to try and get it without creating such a high training stress because heat tra- heat chamber sessions do create a very high training load and uh, it will create an additional fatigue. So if we can get um, passive heat adaptation effects from using those those sort of facilities, then it's been a no-brainer. I worked with um, Kim Morrison for a number of years, and her family owned a uh, hot tub company, basically. So she obviously had one, um, and we started using that pretty regularly. And when I first started coaching her, she was she was terrible in the in the heat; uh, just really didn't tolerate heat very well at all. Um, uh, within a few weeks of doing this just passive heat chamber sessions, uh, passive heat sessions in the hot tub, we were finding significant improvements in her races in the heat. And now that's just, or I don't coach her at the moment, but um, uh, all the way through the, the next three or four years, then we were using those those strategies then as pretty much all the time. So she always had some level of heat adaptation. How long and how often would you generally recommend doing those passive heat sessions? Uh, let's say in the case of an age grouper, so maybe you do have to, <clears throat> uh, like time is at a premium, so to say, but they, yeah. they, they, they have qualified for Kona, they live in the UK. Yeah. What is the yeah. best sort of trade-off, bang for buck? We're generally trying to avoid going more than three days without an exposure. Um, so once you start to go three, four, five days without a heat exposure, then the adaptations you've made up to that point will start to reverse. Um, so we're generally trying to say less than keeping it to within a no more than two day gap between sessions. Uh, it might be that you, I would rarely do one back to back. All right, Monday, Tuesday, for instance, it would normally be something like Monday, Wednesday, Saturday or something. Um, and then you might be back to Monday, Wednesday, Saturday again. So you're looking for around three per week. Um, you don't, some people go overboard. I've seen people go overboard and basically sit for an hour in the sauna every day and that will just exhaust you. Um, it won't, that won't help. It doesn't increase the power of the adaptation. Uh, so doing too much doesn't amplify the effect. It just makes you knackered um so it's so getting the again it's like training getting the right dose is is the is an important part of it and if you're doing three passive sessions and a, a one or potentially two training sessions in the heat in a 14 to 14 day to 21 day period that's going to be upper limit of what i think people should be doing or could be doing yeah yeah just just be uh, careful if you ever um coach any Finnish people because uh, they might associate yes. sitting in the sauna with uh, with also having a yeah. beer or two with or daily three. life so, yeah so so that's, that's yeah. something you take into account so that might also I've, I'm not convinced it wouldn't be it wouldn't apply to some people here as well but yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> I mean another part of that is that the, the temperature is really important so most of the research that's been done on that passive thing is passive uh, adaptation effect has been done on um, in sort of hot tubs or baths uh, and you need water temperature over 40 degrees. It has to be hotter than the body. And if you, what we've tried to do, obviously not everybody has a hot tub in their garden or, or accessible. So if with some athletes, we've tried to do it with, um, with a bath at home. And the biggest problem with a bath at home is it cools down. 
um, you can fill it deep enough and um, sure you can submerge yourself because again you need to be fairly submerged in it um, but the biggest problem is just trying to keep the water temperature hot enough and when I've heard it's quite a few funny stories when people have first been suggested that they do this they're like oh that sounds quite nice believe me a 40 degree bath is not particularly pleasant <laughs> yeah it's a, I'm not sure which is worse an ice bath or a uh, or a hot bath I, I'm pretty sure I think for me the hot bath would be worse mm, yeah and and with the with the active uh, active heat adaptation, the and again let's take the age grouper example, somebody who does not have a mm-hmm. heat chamber chamber. So you mentioned they're turning off the fan. What what yeah. would the protocol be for the active training? And let's take Kona as an example. How often and what types of sessions are you doing? For how long do you do it without without a fan? With maybe in a do you even uh, prescribe doing it in a smaller room than normal to get the heat up or with uh, with some sort of layering and clothes more clothes on than the normal i mean it's if you haven't got good facilities for it i.e. A, a lab or a heat chamber then you're going to be trying to make do with with what you can what you can resource and how you can do it so for instance kona humidity is important um so com- humidity really is the factor in kona um the heat isn't super hot but the wet bulb temperature is off the scale because of the humidity um, so first of all, you need if you're training for Kona, you need humidity. If you're training to do something in in a desert somewhere where it's incredibly dry, the humidity is not so much the factor; it's the absolute temperature. Uh, so, first part is trying to replicate the conditions that you're expecting to be in. So, because of, uh, an important part of the adaptation is the psychology of it as well. Is is what does it feel like? Um, and being soaking wet the whole time because you just can't get rid of the heat because you've got a layer of water on your skin the whole time does take a bit of getting used to. Uh, the next factor then you're looking at is I wouldn't have the fan off for a long period of time because you will always have airflow over you. Uh, you know, as long as you're moving forward, you'll have airflow over you. And if you're in, if you're trying to replicate the conditions of Kona, so 30 plus degrees and 70, 80, 90% humidity, if you turn the fan off, you'll have no airflow over you whatsoever and you will just boil. Um, so it might be a way that if you can't actually get the room to the required temperature or humidity, you might turn the fan off a little bit to try and pop that temperature up or the, the conditions up a little bit. But I wouldn't try and do it for a long period of time with that fan on. Um, because the other thing you also want is you want the quality of training. If, you, if your quality of training in the heat chamber is so poor, um, then you might be well heat adapted, but you won't be very fit. Um, so, so there's, there's obviously a balance between being able to do your training and getting a heat adaptation. The other risk at home, of course, and this should be emphasized is in, in a lab, if you go into a lab for a heat chamber session, if your core temperature goes over 40 degrees, then they will stop you. Um, which can be a limitation because quite a lot of athletes will go over 40 degrees, um, internal core temperature during the course of very hot events. And some people you know the reason for that 40 degrees is is ethical consideration it's considered dangerous or potentially life-threatening when you go much over 40 degrees but it does happen in the real world and um, you know athletes have to be able to sometimes do that and and understand what it feels like at home you can't really measure core temperature accurately Uh, so you have to be careful and you have i wouldn't advise doing it in an environment when you're on your own um, so because if the worst did happen and you killed over and there's nobody there for a few hours then it could get very messy um, so there is there is that consideration I must probably can't emphasize that enough 
but um, the sessions that we would do would vary depending upon upon the. I think I, I tend to take the sessions that we would do outside and transfer them to an, an equivalent or a, a version of it indoors. So for some sessions that might be some sweet spot work. Um, so getting used to long sustained efforts to try and get core temperature up. For some people, it might be more high intensity work with uh, increasing um, sort of power over threshold uh, for short periods of time. It, it's it, there isn't. I don't think there's there's not one answer. I've seen really good. Uh, if I've seen I've seen people do both types of training or two types of training and get very different responses. You give the same thing to somebody else and they get another response. That's the beauty of of what we do. Is everybody is to some degree unique, um, certainly fairly unique anyway. Yep. Yeah, that's, uh, those are some, some really great points and considerations and uh, definitely that specificity of the environment in regard to humidity as well as temperature was uh, great that you pointed that out. Um, one more question here that I wanted to pick your brains on was uh, transitioning from draft legal racing to non-drafting triathlon, which uh, I understand that uh, you've helped quite a few athletes with uh, with that. So what are your mm-hmm. thoughts on that, the different demands of uh, the long distance versus short distance draft legal racing? Um, so I think, that, I mean, we've seen the standard in Ironman and 70.3 has gone up dramatically, I think, in the last three or four years um, because of the, the, the amount of people crossing over from ITU racing uh, and moving the standards on across the speed on the run, um and a lot of sort of certainly at the elite side of things a lot of people think the itu guys are they can't ride they're just swim runners um i think we're seeing that that's not true um because you know you've got people like frodo and annie Hag who come from an itu background now winning um and, and establishing some pretty pretty impressive times and performances in in ironman and they're not the only ones there's quite a lot of people coming across i think a big part of the transition is it suits some people more than it suits other people. And a lot of that is to do potentially with their physiology or their mindset. And some athletes who, some ITU athletes run a relatively low volume, fairly high intensity program. Some have more volume in their program and are probably better as a gen, as a generalization, probably better suited to coming across to 70.3 and Ironman quickly because they have the endurance, they have the volume to do it. Whereas other athletes who have focused more upon the speed side of things and the quality of it, they struggle a bit more with trying to sustain a fairly hard but not really hard intensity for two, three, four hours on the bike and then the same on the run. Uh, so I, I think the, the the standards are very high. I think the, it's uh, it's an interesting time. How would you – what would be the main thing – are there things that generally change when you take on an athlete that is or somebody that you already coach perhaps that is transitioning mm-hmm. from short course to to long course are the generalizations I mean, def- that you can make there yeah definitely i mean the in itu if you're racing in itu at a high level at elite level or as a high level age grouper then who's um you've got the the particular attributes, the swim is de-emphasized for sure. So it, it's good if you, I mean, ITU swimmers, for instance, generally come across, uh, we're talking pro level, ITU swimmers generally come across and they can make front packs um, without too much hard work in, in Ironman or 70.3. The swim volume will generally decrease a little bit because their bike volume needs to go up. Generally in an ITU program, the running is slightly more important because that essentially that's where the, the race is won. Um, and in most cases, the fastest runner will win the race, more or less. They need to be in the game, but the the running does have a, a much higher emphasis. 
We also tend to see higher volumes run by ITU athletes. So although the race is only 10K, then a lot of the volume, there's usually a lot more volume done by ITU athletes than there is even by Ironman athletes, in my experience. And that's because they then de-emphasize the running volume to increase the right cycling volume and because the cycling becomes much, much more significant. You can't give away 10 minutes on the bike and then expect to run that down on 70.3 anymore. And uh, so the, the biking has to be robust. But also, if you're going to ride that hard for that long, if you're if you're not extremely well conditioned, you can't do it. But also, even if you can do it, if you're not extremely well conditioned, you get off and you can't run properly. You can't run it as effectively. So, so that biking, the riding side of things has to be emphasized a lot more. Um, and the mentality of riding for multiple hours really hard is, is a big thing to try and get over. And then there's also the fueling of it. So in ITU, they'll probably pop a couple of gels and, and have a bottle of um, something like Morton or beta fuel or something now. Uh, whereas in ITU, in, in 70.3 and particularly Ironman, then your nutrition strategy has to be bomb- bomb-proof. And that takes practice. Yeah, uh, all all very good points, and uh, really interesting to hear that uh, the run volume uh, quite often comes down in uh, at the professional level. Uh, and I think a lot, you find a lot of the people, a lot of the sort of high, uh, uh, the guys will be running somewhere between eighty to a hundred, hundred and ten k a week um, in in the ITU sort of elites. Whereas in in I in Ironman, yeah, I've seen figures of sometimes fifty to seventy, eighty k. I don't know many Ironman athletes will run over a hundred k a week on a regular basis. Mm. Yeah, uh, about four age groupers that that are maybe so for most age groupers, mm-hmm. it depends a bit on which country you live in, but the yeah. the short distances are still not draft legal, so it's more of a steady yeah. state race regardless. Mm-hmm. And would you say that? The differences aren't so big at all. It's mostly a matter Definitely. of just maybe increasing volume a bit if you can, depending on what you're training for. I think it's a lot more. It's a lot easier to transfer there because you know, sometimes it's just the mentality of going more than twice as far. Um, and sure, the volume needs to come up probably a little bit, um, and the pacing strategy has to be a little bit more controlled. I think when you're used to racing shorter, you tend to race harder. What you tend to see is people go out too hard out of transition um, because they're used to going out pretty much at, at threshold or FTP uh, or close to that and, and then you know finishing in around an hour or so on the bike. When you're going to ride for two and a half hours, it's a different proposition. You've got to control that intensity a lot more. Otherwise, you, you burn your carbs and then you run your risk of, of being depleted and fading towards the end of the, either the bike or the run. Yeah, so I think it's yeah it's it's a lot more straightforward. Also, the swim, the swim wouldn't really change very much. The distance uh, it increases very is negligible compared to the biking and the running increase. Yeah, and one final question before the rapid fire questions. Again, piggybacking a bit on your sports science background, what if you could recommend uh, coaches or athletes to really study two to three topics within? physiology or sports science in general and get a more sort of in-depth picture of those perhaps topics that you feel are misunderstood or underutilized in triathlon training what would those topics be i mean i think uh, i've been working with a um a younger coach um he's an ex-athlete who used to be part of the program here and um came in as an athlete trained and he's now he's now coaching and he's i think he'd be a really great coach um moving forward one of the things that as an athlete, he learned loads of training, um, loads of sessions, but didn't fully understand or didn't really understand why or what they were doing. 
what those sessions were doing. They were just training sessions and you do this session at this time. So for me, to really be able to have an objective view of an athlete's program, you have to understand physiology in some degree, at least to a, to a, to a basic degree. I think sometimes people get um, caught up with all the, the funky uh, marginal gain stuff on how to do things, but fundamentally understanding what the body is going through makes a big difference when you start thinking about, okay, how do I structure this session? What am I trying to do with this session? How does this session then fit into the the picture as a, as a big picture? Um, and I think that understanding physiology at a, a relatively basic, but fundamental level is really important. And otherwise you're just, otherwise you're just regurgitating patterns that you've learned from, from other people. Yep. And do you have some resource that you recommend for people that might want to to go into that? Um, uh, not really. No, I mean, that's, uh, I think one of the uh, I'm going to struggle with a couple of your next questions. I know, but um, one of the things I think there's so much good resources out there now available to the public. You know, some of the YouTube channels and things are excellent, but they're often very um, compartmentalized. Um, and it's it's a difficult area, I think, to be able to, to start with. I mean, the obvious thing is either a coaching course, which has a good physiology background, which is not necessarily all of them. Uh, simple things like modern textbooks, uh, they will explain physiology, understanding what that lactate isn't the evil that it's supposed to be. Uh, you know, that's a one of my bugbears. People go, oh, my legs are full of lactate. It's like, oh, God, give me a break. Yeah. Um you know, understanding that's not actually a problem. Um, it's a part of the process. Understanding what the the um, limitations to performance are. You know, one of the things that we start with when we look at physiology is what are the limitations to performance? As an endurance athlete, you've got three main limitations, VO2 max, your economy or your efficiency, and how much of that VO2 max you can sustain for the duration of the event you want. Now, you then start to look at what are the factors that affect those things, and you sort of move down the line by doing that, you can start to unpick what uh, what athletes need to do in terms of their program. And some of the textbooks, you know, some really good textbooks out there will give you that information. It's not as interesting as watching a YouTube channel or reading some somebody's blog. Um, but I don't think there are many resources out there that are systematic. And I think that's that's the, the thing that you need to understand is the systematic. You need to work from the beginning and work through it uh, rather than just grabbing a topic in the middle of the the conversation or something yeah yeah i would absolutely agree and uh, yeah I, I thought that you might say a textbook there so uh, so yeah <laughs> i didn't refer to youtube channels or, or anything like like that I, yeah. one, one that i like is it, uh, the biochemical basis for sports performance by mm-hmm. uh, i think michael gleason is one mm-hmm. of the authors yeah. of that don't to... yeah mike gleason's uh, one of the used to, uh, i don't think he's here now he used to be a lecturer here at loughborough for a long time yeah 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 that one is really good but uh, definitely if, mm-hmm. uh, like you you need to um, be focused and concentrated going through that because it is uh, quite technical but it's, it's quite heavy going and sometimes you know you, you can jump into something like that but you, you need a, a more fundamental understanding of physiology before you get to that stage as well i mean obviously you've got you've got very good qualifications and experience in physiology as well um for somebody who doesn't for the average age group who doesn't really understand it then it, they need to go back to almost like A-level physiology, A-levels being a sort of 17 to 18-year-old qualification in the UK, um, like um, it's like GCSEs and things. Yep. You need to go back to that sort of level of physiology to understand it. Um, but it, I think things have also changed a little bit over the last few years as our understanding of some of the mechanisms have improved. 
So reading stuff from the 70s doesn't necessarily, isn't necessarily going to help because it's now not actually the current thinking. Yeah. Yeah, I think even a book like Triathlon Science uh, by mm-hmm. uh, Friel and Vance, uh, there yeah. you have a few chapters on physiology and they will give yeah. a good sort of basic understanding of, of what's going yes, on. Yes, yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, and the thing with all of these things is you, you go on Twitter and there'll be a, 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 a science fight between two eminents of his physiologists, both of whom are probably right to a degree, but they have fundamentally different principles and different guiding lights. And uh, as an uneducated person in that scenario you can get very sold on basically the one who sells their message the best um it doesn't necessarily mean they're right it just means they sold their message better definitely it is a bit of a minefield i will confess Mm. and anything else other than uh, the understanding of the basic physiology that you want to highlight that that you think would make sense for uh, coaches or athletes to understand uh, to understand better i think planning i mean one of the things that for me I, i i I really struggle. If I haven't got a plan to work to as a coach, I, I need to be able to see the big picture. Um, and I and I like to have athletes with goals. So sometimes you have people who just want to um, train. Uh, and I find it really difficult to to, uh, to embrace that because I, I don't know what I'm trying to do as a coach. So I think, you know, learning to be able to plan and organize training, but, but planning and organizing and having got a goal philosophy. Um, so... Uh, how that affects athletes and how you can use goal philosophy with um, with different types of athletes. So obviously, some athletes are much more outcome driven. They want to beat a certain time. Some athletes are very much I want to improve. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know the way in which you set goals and things will be different for those those types of athletes. And that planning and pulling all the bits and pieces of your your puzzle together, I think, is also very important. Yeah, yeah, but that's where some of your spreadsheets come in handy as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been working on a database. It's taken me, I've been doing it for about two years, trying to find the right tools to do it. And it, it works for me. I, I don't think I could, I, I couldn't commercialize it because I, I, there's too many, I'm not a programmer, so there's too many footballs on it. But it's it's starting the process for me of actually trying to organize everything so I can present it to the athletes in a way in which they can sort of see the, the logic of it all. And then we can review various elements of everything. And we, we've got all the records and all the information other than the training data in one place. Yeah, yeah that's really cool. Uh, all right, so let's move on to the rapid-fire questions, which are just mm-hmm. one-sentence answers. And the first one is, what's your favorite book, blog, or resource related to triathlon? Uh, unfortunately, I'm going to let you down. I don't have a favorite. I, I tend to sort of go through phases of reading bits and pieces. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to manipulate your question a little bit and tell you what's on my desk at the moment. Yep. Um, so I've been doing a lot of work on strength and conditioning um, and improving my understanding of strength and conditioning over the last uh, last few months, part of lockdown. Uh, so I've got Strength and Conditioning for Endurance Running uh, by Richard Blaygrove on my desk at the moment. Uh, and in a similar vein, think, where is it? There we go. Uh, I've also got Strength and Conditioning for Cyclists uh, by Phil Burton and Mark Nevins on my desk as well at the moment. All right, great. Um, both of which are different, but pretty good reads. Yeah. And what's your favorite piece of gear or equipment? That's like asking a mechanic, what's his favorite spanner? <laughs> uh, um, is it the 15 mil or the 20 mil socket? I don't have a favorite piece. I, I know, I know I'm copping out and not answering your question, but I don't have a favorite piece of equipment. I, to me as a coach, they're all just tools. Um, some of them annoy me more than others do. <laughs> um, like I, I use WKO for more advanced analytics, but it annoys the hell out of me. Um, but I use it. It, it is a good tool, but it annoys me. If I had to pick something at the moment that's my sort of favorite go-to at the moment, I like stride power meters for running. Um, 
I find the information that we're getting to, getting from them really useful. Sure, I understand some of the mechanical and the engineering limitations of it and things like that, but it is actually, I, I think it's quite an exciting tool and I, you know, I'm recommending a lot of my athletes use it and we're getting some really good information back from it and we're, it's, it is sensitive enough when we, when you use it in the right way to, to get good quality um, feedback and, uh, and track changes and things. Yep. And finally, what's the personal habit that's helped you achieve success? organization and, and the planning side of things it's that, that's for me is I, i when you when you put that question to me and said i was going to have to answer that one i had to think long and hard about that um and i think it is the planning side of things uh, being able to to see the big picture and pull pull it together for athletes and uh, and organize things yeah and uh, where can listeners learn more about you and your coaching business website social media and and so on so- So we're on Facebook, we're on uh, Instagram uh, as IntelliTry, I-N-T-E-L-L-I-T-R-I, um, Intelligent Triathlon Training, uh, or you can go to itt.world, uh, which is our new website. So th- there's uh, more information about me and what we do on there. Perfect. And uh, I'll link to that in the show notes as well. Uh, Magic. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mark, for coming on and uh, sharing your knowledge. It was uh, a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I hope that you enjoyed that interview. As always, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com. We will have links to Mark's website, social media, and also a link to the training category archive of that triathlon show, where you can find plenty of training talks of a similar format to this with various coaches who have been on the podcast over the years. On Thursday, we have another Q&A episode coming out as usual. And next Monday, I interview Professor John Hawley on some incredibly fascinating topics, including musculoskeletal adaptations to endurance training, the train low strategy, training with low carbohydrate, and uh, training for mus- muscle fiber type adaptations and the difference between fast twitch and slow twitch fibers and how that affects your training and adaptations. So stay subscribed to the podcast if you aren't already. There's a lot of great content coming out in the next few weeks that you don't want to miss, including uh, the Monday interview with John Hawley, which was really uh, a fascinating interview. If you're looking for training plans or coaching services, be sure to check out what we have to offer on scientifictriathlon.com. We have tons of information there. And for any further information, feel free to email me, michael at scientifictriathlon.com. And finally, thank you to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Go and take their free online sweat test and get 15% off your order with the promo code DEATTRAFLONSHOW15. And thank you to Roka, that you can find on roka.com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, and high-performance eyewear and prescription glasses and sunglasses and get 20% off your order with the promo code that you can get on roka.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.